so tonight we're not going to talk about something fun, like Jonathan said, and I'm really sorry, but I think it's something we need to cover together. Um, so tonight we're going to be talking about sin. Doesn't that sound great? You're not supposed to cheer for that. What's wrong with y'all? Yeah, there it is. Sin is bad, right. Okay, so we're going to talk about sin, what it is and what it isn't. Um, but first, I'm going to start uh, with kind of what may seem like a random bit of scripture, and then, and then we'll go into it, okay? Uh, but we're going to start off by reading Psalm 19, verses 1 through 2. I'll give you a minute to flip there. Actually, you know what? Let's pray first. Does that sound good? All right, let's pray. Dear Jesus, Lord, uh, this topic is not a whole lot of fun to talk about or hear about. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would just help us um, go into this with the right heart, right attitude, um, and open our ears to what we need to hear. Um, Lord, we're excited about what you're going to say to us. Holy Spirit, we give you the right to speak to us and, and to change our minds and our hearts where it needs to be changed. Lord, we want you to be with us. We invite you in. We love you. Amen. Okay, so Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. All right, if you don't have your Bible app or Bible with you, we'll have it on the screen. All right. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Amen, right? So this is a weird place to start with sin, right? Like, what does this have to do with anything? Well, I'll tell you. So here's the deal. This may shock you. But I'm a huge nerd, okay? I know. Yeah, right? And so growing up, I had like one life goal. The only thing I wanted to be was an astronaut, right? I desperately wanted to be an astronaut, okay? And uh, I, I owned multiples of telescopes, you know? And I remember being in like second and third grade when we go to the library to check out books. My friends are picking out like green eggs and ham and stuff. And I'm going to the science section because I want to read about the moons of Saturn, right? So like super nerd, okay? I, I was that guy, right? And, and so for the longest time, I wanted to go into astronomy. I wanted to be an astronaut. And then when I get to high school, I get into AP physics and figure out I ain't got the, I ain't got the chops for it. You know what I mean? Anybody here, like, math is not your friend? Yeah, yeah. If you like math, you're weird. Um, but if you're good at math, you're going to make lots of money. That's for sure. So, I'm going to bore you for a minute with some cool astronomy stuff. Okay? Y'all have great attitudes. We'll see if it carries through. All right. So... The thing that I love is, is like, so our sun, right, is a star, and it's about your average star, okay? And it's 93 million miles away. 93 million miles away. And yet it's so hot that it can still burn you, right? And still kill you. It still, like, kills people. And it's 93 million miles away, all right? And it's about the volume of, like, 3 million Earths, right? You could fit, like, 3 million Earths inside of this thing. Right? It's huge. It's ridiculously big. In fact, if you took all of the matter in the whole solar system and added it together, the sun would make 99% of that. That's massive, right? In fact, it has so much mass, it is so dense that a little photon, a photon's like a packet of light, okay? A little photon gets like shot off down at the core of the star. It takes it 100,000 years to reach the surface, 
because it keeps bumping into stuff, right? Ricocheting around like some kind of crazy billiard ball, right? It's traveling at the speed of light, and it takes it 100,000 years to reach the surface. Once it reaches the surface, it takes eight minutes to get to us, right? Isn't that ridiculous, okay? So this sun is this crazy, crazy thing, okay? And our sun is actually kind of a boring star. There's some more awesome stars out there, okay? So as stars get bigger, different things happen to them, right? If you're like between three and five solar masses or three and five times the size of the sun, um, the, the stars will be hotter or bigger or more dense. And when they collapse, uh, they turn into different things, right? So like uh, if you're between three and five solar masses, you'll turn into a neutron star, which is like taking three suns and collapsing it down to the size of Manhattan, then making it spin 3,000 times a second, which is pretty cool, right? How would you like to be on the surface of that planet, that star? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. And if you had like a a sugar cube's worth of that matter, right, and you put it on the ground, it would shoot straight through the earth because it would be so dense. Isn't that crazy? Okay. So what's going on inside of these stars? That was for fun. Okay. What's going on inside of these stars is like, A star is held in tension between the outward force of the nuclear fusion that's happening, right? It constantly is held in tension between exploding and then gravity holding it together. Does that make sense? Okay, so inside the star, what's happening is you have like little atoms that are just kind of flying around. And sometimes they get so hot or so energetic that when they smack into each other, they stick. Okay? And that's how you make like different elements, right? You have hydrogen bump into each other, make helium. Two heliums bump into each other, make carbon. Kind of cool, right? And each time this happens, more energy is released, okay? Now, what happens after that is these, as the, as the stars get bigger in size, right? The, the most dense star that we've ever found is, I wrote it down, 315 solar masses, 315 solar masses. The largest star in volume that we've found is only 17 solar masses, but it's so big that it would swallow Jupiter, right? If you replaced our sun with it, it would eat Jupiter. It's huge, right? Now, when stars get that big and that size, they start making really big, heavy elements in their core. I told you this was going to be boring, right? I warned you. Okay, right? And so these things slam into each other. And then when you hit the point where you're making iron, Right? When iron begins to be fused in the core of a star, right, something happens. Iron is an energy-deficient reaction. So it takes more energy to make it happen than it gives off. Okay? And then what happens is the sun or the star loses the fight with gravity. Okay? And have you all seen, like, stars go nova? Have you seen that ever? Like, if you're watching science channels or whatever... Okay, so in our heads we think, oh, they explode. No, actually what happens is the core of the star collapses because iron is made there, right? So the core of the star collapses, and then the star collapses down at the speed of light on itself. And the nova is actually it ricocheting off of itself because it collapsed so fast. Isn't that crazy? Okay, so when you get to these supermassive stars... Iron gets made in the heart. It collapses down. What, what, be, what is made by the biggest is a black hole. Have you all heard of black holes, right? How many of you all have seen Interstellar? Right? I hate that movie, but that's okay. Can't stand that movie. 
Okay, so, so black holes are crazy. If you had like a special suit on, and let's say you could fly inside of a black hole and, and not be torn apart by the gravity, right? Inside of a black hole, time and space is so twisted that if you pulled out a flashlight and looked in front of you, you would see the back of your own head. Isn't that crazy? Like, in, that's if you survived, like, falling into it, right? Actually, gravity would be stronger at the bottom of your feet than the top of your head, and you'd be stretched. It's called spaghettification. That's the legitimate term. You would be torn apart. Anyway, that's crazy. But if you survived and then you shined a flashlight, you would see the back of your own head because space is so twisted inside of a black hole. The heavens declare, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. So what happens is these these stars, right? Like our sun, that gives off warmth and energy and life. 99% of the energy that that we have on earth in biology, in all sorts of ways, comes from the sun itself. It's a life-giving force. But when the heart of any star gets cold and hard, it collapses in on itself and becomes so twisted up that it just becomes an agent of destruction. Isn't that incredible? The black hole shows us something. That when your heart goes cold and hard, the only thing you can think about is yourself. You shine a flashlight and all you see is the back of your own head. And that's what selfishness is. The stars are declaring to us selfishness. When you become so selfish that you are the only thing that you can think about, you become like a black hole. All you do is travel through the world and destroy. You take things that are beautiful and good and you twist them and pervert them until they are no longer recognizable. The heavens declare the glory of God. And this actually flows with everything that we've been learning so far, right? Right? We've learned the, the happy side of this coin, right? Is that God's kingdom works in certain ways, like love seeks a need and meets it, right? If we love someone and, they see, and we see that they have a need in their life, if we really love them, we will meet that need. That's life-giving, right? Love is an unselfish choice for the highest good of God and his kingdom. We're supposed to be unselfish, right? We're supposed to be selfless, right? We're supposed to be giving of ourselves and wanting the best for everyone around us. And then we're meant to live in community with one another. That's what Jonathan talked about last week, right? Is that we're supposed to share our lives and be generous with one another. But here we have an example from nature of what happens when we're not. When our hearts go cold and hard, And we become twisted and selfish. So that is what sin is. It's just when your heart becomes hard and you become twisted and selfish. But sometimes we think of sin and we have like some really goofy views on it. I'm sorry, this is so heavy. I should have put more jokes in here or something. But sometimes we think of sin as like a slip, right? Or a mistake, Right? Like, we'll hear like, oh, if you, if you grew up in the church, you know, you speak some Christianese and you'll be like, oh, my, that brother, he fell into sin. 
Like, how do you fall into sin? Right? Or like, when, if you read your Bible and you open to Genesis chapter 3, you'll see the title, The Fall of Man. Right? But that's a really dumb way to explain it. It's not like Adam and Eve walked up to the tree and then all of a sudden an apple was in their mouth. You know? It's like they trip on the ground like, oh no, it's ruined. You know? Like, it wasn't like that. Right? Sin is not a slip. It's not a mistake. It's a conscious choice that you make. So, the good side of that is that you can't sin by accident. There is no sinning by accident. There are mistakes, and those do have consequences, but not all mistakes are sin. But all sins are a mistake. Does that make sense? So you have sins of omission, where you maybe made a mistake, but then what really, what we're talking about is the sin of commission, where you commit a sin. You make a choice, a conscious choice. Does that make sense? And then there's some other schools of thought that, that I could rant against for years and just ask any of my friends about it, right? But sin is not inherited. I want to make this clear to you. Sin is not inherited. There are some schools of thought within Christianity that say because of two people in our ancient history making a bad decision, we are now predisposed to sin. We, we are going to sin. You can't help it. I'm sure some of you have heard that. But that is not consistent with God's character or Jesus' character. God seems to hold us accountable for our actions. And how can we be accountable if we had no choice in the matter? Right? That's like me trying to say, if you breathe oxygen, I'm going to shoot you. What a terrible, terrible rule to make. Right? In fact, the Bible's clear about this point. Sin, you're not doomed to sin. Sin is not the status quo. This is what Jeremiah says. He says, In those days, people will no longer say, The parents have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. So cast away from your mind any thought that I am forced to sin. I'm doomed to this. I have no choice. Because it's unbiblical. In fact, that verse is so important that it's repeated in the book of Malachi. Isn't that cool? I'll buy you a Coke if you find it. All right? So we've kind of defined, defined like what sin isn't. Let's talk about some of the things that it is. It's the antithesis of the unselfishness, right? It's the antithesis of community. It's a destructive force. Sin is selfishness. Sin is selfishness. Sin is an outright willingness to destroy anything and anyone to get what you want. It is a maliciousness and a greed. It is a hunger that is never satiated. See, and this is terrible because when you act like that, you're acting like you're the center of the universe, right? You're acting like you're the most important thing in the universe. You're acting like you are all that matters. Do you understand? But here's the crazy thing. Okay, so we all know like in the Garden of Eden, right, the, the, the devil, the serpent creature... Tempted Adam and Eve by saying, you will be like God. 
right? He said, hey, eat this fruit. You'll be like God. And the ironic thing is that that was what God intended all the time, right? God has always said, hey, you should be like me, right? And so the devil tempted us with the very thing that God had wanted for us anyway. So here's the funny thing. We all feel that drive to be the center of attention, right? There are times when we just feel like we should be the most important thing in the world. And that's a true and good thing. Because you were meant to be the center of God's attention. Have you ever thought about that? You are meant to be the center of God's attention. God is an infinite source of loving kindness. So all of us can have all of him. It, seems, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but that's actually how it is. You will never run out of God. We are intended to be in the middle of the flow of his love and kindness and generosity forever. It's never supposed to stop. And he wanted to spend, he wants to spend eternity with us. G.D. Watson, my favorite author, my second favorite author, he said this, Who but an infinite God could have so formed creation as to make it seem to each person that he stands in the center of the horizon and the world, and to make it equally true that each child of his stands in the center of his mighty providence and grace. Have you ever thought about that? That when you stand and look at the sunset, you're the middle of it. You stand at the middle of it, and so does everyone else. For the heavens declare the glory of God. God has written it into the very physics of the universe to show you that you are the center of all of his attention. You are the apple of his eye. You are the target of all the loving kindness that he has stored up within his heart. And that's a beautiful thought. But that's what makes sin so much more tragic. Is that we have a good, loving God that wants you to be the center of all of his affection. And then when we choose sin, we say, no, God, that's not enough. Your infinite stores are not good enough for me. And so then we go on the warpath and we decide we have to have the attention and affection of everyone around us as well. What an affront to Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 59, the prophet Isaiah writes this, For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So, justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets, and honesty cannot enter. That's very poetic language. 
And here, Isaiah seems to use this really funny word, iniquity. How many of y'all use iniquity whenever you talk? No? Okay. I thought maybe you did. No one's walking around talking like Isaiah. All right, fine. Um, But he uses the word iniquity here. And this is a very expressive word. I love it. Right? Y'all ready for Hebrew? It's the Hebrew word avon. Avon. And it comes from the root ava. And what this word means is to bend or twist or distort. To bend or twist or distort. And three of the first times that it's used in the Bible, it's actually not translated as iniquity, but translated as punishment. When God tells Cain, after he kills his brother, God tells Cain, hey, look, bud, you're going to have to leave. You're going to have to go away from here. You can't be around your family anymore. You need to go. Cain says, I cannot bear this punishment. I cannot bear this avone. I can't bear this twistedness. In fact, that's the Old Testament's favorite phrase for talking about somebody being punished is bearing your iniquities. And the idea that the prophets are communicating, the idea that God's communicating is that we took something that was good and we bent it. We took something that was right and we twisted it. We took something beautiful and we distorted it. And now we're left with the broken pieces of our lives. And so what Isaiah is saying here is that Israel at the time had become so broken, twisted, and distorted, had been so bent, that nothing right and straight could even function there. Does that make sense? Is this just really heavy and that's why everyone looks like this? Okay. I guess you shouldn't smile through this, right? You don't want to be like, yeah, everything is terrible, Scroggins. You're right. See, and this is why the words of Jesus feel so revolutionary. How many of you remember the first time you heard the words of Jesus? About forgiving, about how loving God is. Like if you haven't that, had that experience, I challenge you to read Matthew chapter 5. Just go home and read it after this. Because our Father is so good that he sends his reign on the just and the unjust alike. Isn't that amazing? And it feels amazing because we have grown so accustomed to the brokenness that we carry around with us. See, but Jesus isn't bringing a new revolutionary way. He's actually bringing us back to the original idea. So God gave us these laws and these rules on on how to live because he knew how we were supposed to live. And he didn't want us to break ourselves and break those around us with our selfishness. Does that make sense? And so what we say is God's laws are a description of reality from an infinite perspective. God's laws are a description of reality from an infinite perspective. So, when he says, the soul that sins, he shall die, that's like saying, verily I say unto thee, 
if thou castest thyself off of an exceedingly great height without a parachute, bat suit, or hang glider, thou shalt accelerate towards the ground at 32 foot a second squared, and when thou strikest thy head against the pavement, thou shalt be paced. Amen. Right? It's the same thing. God is describing the results of you taking something good and straight and beautiful and bending it and twisting it. This is just the consequence of your choices. To ignore what the creator of the universe says about how to live is to be foolish. Some of you all have heard me tell this story before. But um, I, I used to manage a restaurant. And I can't remember why, but at one point, you know, the, the wait staff was sitting around talking about how many notches they had in their bedposts. You know what I mean? Because wait staff isn't exactly known for being morally upright, you know? If you're a waiter here, you know what I'm saying. All right. Okay. And so they get to me and they're like, hey, Scroggins, how, how many, what's your number? And I was like, my wife. One. Like, really? I'm like, yeah, we waited till our wedding night. And they just were like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? And they're just making fun of me the whole time, okay? That's fine. It's like, whatever, you know, I ain't scared, okay? (laughs) But there's this one waitress in particular, and she just zeroed in on me. And she just, like, would not let it go. You know what I'm talking about? She, like, just kept on, you know, like, stop it, right? She's like, how could, that was so stupid, blah, blah, blah. And she was just telling me how dumb I was, right? And, okay, so I'm not known for my patience, okay? That's not like a gift I have. And so I'm like, I'm going to slam this door, and I'm going to slam it hard, okay? And maybe it's not my most godly moment, but at the end of the shift, we're doing the checkout, we're settling all the accounts, and it's just me and her. And she walks up, she's like, I can't believe you did. Did you really wait until your wedding night? What if it was bad? I was like, well, one, I had no comparison. Like, (laughs) it's just going to be awesome. (laughs) And then it's going to get more awesome as time goes on. Y'all will learn. Amen. Okay. (laughs) But then I was like, two, have you ever considered, you've been telling me the whole time why it's wrong and stupid for me to do this. But have you ever considered about why it's right? Have you thought about why it would be the right thing to do? She's like, no. I was like, okay, well, here's the deal. The morning after my wedding, I rolled over in my bed and I looked at my wife. And it was the closest, most beautiful, intimate moment I've ever felt with another human being. Incomparable. And I said, what will you do on the morning after your wedding? When you roll over and you look at your husband and go, he wasn't as good as the last guy. Or God forbid, was I as good as the last girl? She took something beautiful, she twisted it, and she broke it. And in breaking it, she broke herself. Because you don't break God's laws. They break you. You don't break God's laws. They break you. She wept. And she cried. 
because she knew that she had exchanged something beautiful for something cheap. She selfishly chose to be the center of the universe, no matter the cost. And now, not only did she hurt herself, but she hurt her future husband as well. And there are things that she can never get back. And like Cain, she said, I can't bear this iniquity. I can't bear this punishment. But here's the thing, is that God isn't punishing you. God isn't punishing you for your sin. Sin punishes itself. Sin punishes itself because it's an unwise choice. It's an unwise choice to walk against what reality is. It's like driving on the wrong side of the road. It's just stupid. Eventually, you're going to hurt somebody or you're going to hurt yourself. Do you understand? So, I've, I've been doing ministry for a very long time. And one of the questions that comes up all the time is, why doesn't God just forgive everyone? Why doesn't God just let everyone into heaven? That's a fair question, don't you think? Right? And he could. I'm sure that he could do that. But what if he did let everyone into heaven? What if a selfish person gets into heaven? Could you imagine what would become of them? They would have eternity to practice being selfish. Like, think of the worst roommate you've ever had. How they never did the dishes, left the toilet seat up. I don't know if that's the thing with girls. Um, <laughs> hairs in the shower drain. Seth. <laughs> you know what I mean? But what if they had a thousand years to practice getting out of doing the dishes? Heaven wouldn't be heaven for very long. See, God is protecting his home. Nobody wants to live with a terrible roommate, right? If you could go back in time and not live with those terrible roommates, wouldn't you do it? Right? You'd, you'd get into like that, you know, the car go 88 miles per hour and then like Marty McFly slap yourself in the face, right? Like, don't do it, you know? I know I would. And maybe I was the terrible roommate. I don't know. But here's the deal is that in heaven, you have to be somebody worth spending eternity with. Because it's described as a wedding. And you only marry people that are worth marrying. You're not just going to walk up to some random person on the street and marry them, are you? Because that's stupid. What if they're a jerk? Right? Why would God do anything different? Because if he lets anybody into heaven, heaven doesn't stay heaven. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And this must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about 
if I were going to live only 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I am going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that, <clears throat> that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely correct technical term for what it would be. But, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. See, God doesn't let people into heaven because the people that aren't in heaven don't want to be there. They've chosen selfishly their entire lives. Their whole lives they've said, God, all your love and kindness and goodness is not good enough for me. Why would you want that person in heaven anyway? I would dare say that they wouldn't want to go. Does that make sense? Y'all tracking with me? So... Sin and selfishness is self-punishing. It's self-defeating. And God cannot allow it into heaven because it would ruin heaven. So, we go through our lives and we're constantly telling God that all of his love isn't good enough. Everything he's done for us isn't good enough. We want nothing to do with them. And so, at the end of the times, judgment day comes, what is God supposed to do? What is he supposed to do with the people that want nothing to do with him? Well, he created a place. He created a place where he is not. You understand... Sin punishes itself, right? You don't break God's laws. They break you. So God says, if you want to spend eternity in a place where I am not, I've created that place. And there is no love. There is no joy. There is no kindness. That sounds like hell. Because that's what it is. So these people say, I want nothing to do with you or your character. I want you away from me. And so God sends them away. And he weeps over them. And they go to a place where he is not. And they've punished themselves. And they cry out, I can't bear this punishment. Because they took something good and beautiful, a relationship with Jesus, and broke it. And twisted it and distorted it. So if I can get the band to come back up. I know this hasn't been fun, but it's something we need to talk about. Jesus calls us to repent, right? And that's a big, fancy, technical word, but what it means is just change your mind. 
just stop being selfish. He lays out the program for his kingdom. He lays out exactly how we need to treat each other and how we need to treat him. And he describes reality for us. And you're made for that. You can live like that. So here's, here's what I think we need to do. Let's all stand up where we're sitting. Not like on the chair, but in front. I worded that weird. I think maybe some of us feel a conviction that we've been making some pretty poor choices. That the only thing we can think about is ourselves. And we become like this whirlwind through our life and other people's lives. And we're doing nothing but harming. And if that's the case, there's forgiveness. Jesus loves you. That doesn't change. But he wants you to change. And I think that's okay. Okay.